This podcast was recorded on November 20th, 2020. Hello, ladies and gentlemen and people outside the binary. Broken Class is now in session. I'm your discussion leader, Thomas Huda. This is a show that's completely uncut, uncensored, and very entertaining, I think. Uh, it's edutainment. And my guest today is a great example of somebody who is honestly one of the most intelligent people that I know in my generation and is also pretty damn funny and interesting as he shakes his head and, and disagrees. Uh, Rohan Mukherjee. How are you today, Rohan? You know, I'm, I'm chilling, living life, experiencing nice. this wonderful time we're all living in. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me here on Broken Class. Uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, just to give people some background... Uh, you are basically <laughs> one of my very best friends from college, um, if not my best friend from college, as I get rid of this ridiculous background on Zoom. Um, and gosh, like we would just have great conversations about a whole litany of different things. We would go mm -hmm. into the Arboretum late at night and do our <laughs> thing and hang out and... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you just, you know, I think we have a different view of the world on on some issues in that, you know, I know you to be a little more like libertarian leaning than certainly me. Um, but yeah, I want to ask you off the bat, what is a controversial opinion that you have about anything? I support the, the Marco Rubio water break. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say as you were drinking water. Okay. I mean, I, I do too, in that it was funny and demonstrated that he wasn't really ready for the big time, you know? Yeah. Or, or you just got to be a Chad, you know, and just like take a 20 second break, chug the water and then continue speaking like uh, other presidential candidates did in the same primary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what is one controversial opinion that I have that I feel like would ruffle a lot of feathers? I mean, I have a lot of opinions that are controversial to some, but not to all. But I think the universally controversial opinion that I have is, I, I think existence is an illusion. Like, I don't, I don't think, like, the whole concept that we are our own independent beings that have this actual, like, constancy and coherence can necessarily preclude existence, right? Like, so... so um, like Descartes suggested that I think, therefore I am. And he built it upon this whole pyramid of, of uh, deduction, right? He's, he's a reductio ad absurdum. Like if you don't think, you can't be, right? right? But, but the very nature of thinking precludes existence. But how do, you, how do you know? Like how do you know that that thinking itself is? Like how do you know that thinking isn't an illusion? How do you know that it's not how most of how we experience the world isn't merely illusory? I mean... In Hinduism, we have a concept for it. We call it Maya, which is that everything is just kind of broken down into this nothingness, and that something is really at the core, just nothing, and, and vice versa. We all just stem from this pool of the abyss, and, mm. and I think there, that makes something absurd about our existential struggles, because so much of our existential struggle doesn't come from asking why we exist, but it's asking, do we even exist to begin with? Hmm. You know, I had mentioned that you're libertarian leaning, and now you sound like someone who's done drugs. So I'm sorry that you're <laughs> fitting into the stereotype. No, um, but actually, I really appreciate that because when I was in high school, I remember um, 
you know, uh, in education, sometimes people will say uh, to like people who are training to become teachers, students don't remember lessons, they remember moments. And that's mm. definitely something I agree with. One moment that stuck out to me when I was a student was this quote from a documentary we watched where they basically said that Western religions tend to look externally in source of God and Eastern re religions to the extent that this is like a, you know, easy binary you mm. can create. Eastern religions tend to look inward. So mm. that would make some sense to me that there is a fundamental wrestling with whether or not, you know, a God is in me if I can even exist at all, you know? Like mm -hmm. um, if you're if you're looking for that source of meaning, um, well, it has to come from first the idea that you are at all. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting. I don't I don't totally get what you said, <laughs> but that's because you're well, smarter I than can, me. <laughs> I, I can I can uh, I can elaborate on what that means, right? So we preclude that based on the very presence of sensory experience and reflection, that that reflection must be reflecting something. Right, that that there must be something out there. That's where the, I think, therefore, I am paradigm comes from. Is I'm my thoughts are a reflection of something. So that there must be like some existence that precludes the essence. Right, it's like the essence versus existence question. It's like there's something there that this essence, this thought, this rational process is reflecting. Otherwise, it mm. wouldn't even that rational process wouldn't even be occurring occurring to begin with. Right, there right. would be no like cognitive machinations in our mind that are like spinning and turning. And churning ideas if there was nothing that those ideas were reflected or built upon. So hence things have to exist. But mm. the the counter the counter argument is that everything that your mind is creating could be superfluous. That you're you are creating existence as you think about it. Rather you are constructing your world and reality as you tend to perceive and interpret it. But in perceiving and interpreting is actually itself perhaps an act of creation. So you can't you can't necessarily avert that. You can't I think I think existence isn't really a clear and solved issue. I think in so many ways there's more evidence pointing to that we are all like leading lives of this shared illusion. And it's mm. just sort of perpetuated by the way we communicate and relate to one another and on, on our day-to-day -day interactions, right? We're socialized by the way we are raised and cultivated by our family and our neighbors to share in certain illusions and to share in certain assumptions. And it's those a prioris that frame our, frame our worldview. It's not that they're necessarily reflecting some external reality that invariably exists outside of us and that we're constantly interpreting, but in a sense of framing and creating our reality without even realizing it. Right. Um, what is one like everyday um, scenario like a day-to-day -day situation where you, where this thought kind of applies to the way that you interpret your world, whether you're looking out the window during, while you're doing your little business analyst job or whatever the fuck you do, um, sorry, or like you're going to the market and you pick up an apple and you're like, is this apple really here? Like, is it really an apple? I would, <laughs> I would say, and this comes most in terms of the way I, I interpret preference and taste. Right, mm. like the way we prefer certain certain things that we encounter, um, I think is a is a great example. So, for instance, one of my my criticisms of certain certain economists, like particularly those who kind of adhere to this preference utilitarianism, that you know you want to ma maximize all of the preferences made available to you, 
right? The issue with that is we're never really questioning what frames or creates those preferences, right? There, there's an a priori out there that those preferences are innate, to some extent immovable, and if they exist, they must be ma maximized. Right. And I think that's, an, that's another example is that the way, like the same way that we sort of subjectively construct or create and whatever subjective means, I think the subjective objective paradigm has its own issues that binary. Mm. But um, I think the way we sort of frame and create things also affects the way that we prefer them on our day, 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 daily interaction, the way we favor one over another, favor certain political opinion over another, favor a certain partner over another, you know, and it's, uh, and it's all something that is, is affecting not just our, the reality we create, but also our relationship with ourselves. Hmm. One of the things I kind of picked up on with that is whether when we favor a certain partner over one another. And I think one way that your way of thinking is hopefully um, taking a little bit more hold in mainstream Western society is um, just body image and um, understandings of like conventional beauty. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you'll have um, Sports Illustrated swimsuit covers now of people who have a larger body, you know, and, and wear mm -hmm. weight in different places where it was usually where it was before just like this, this cookie cutter airbrushed, totally produced image. Um, I guess, I mean, the, those models tend to actually look like that, but I'm sure there's like some, some still some digital editing and, and like they, they work really hard to look a certain way. Um, whereas, mm -hmm. Um, I wonder where it's come from, whether it's just social media or Instagram or the internet in general, where people have been able to, um, be like, Hey, you know what? Like all, all these different kinds of body types can be absolutely beautiful. Uh, and I would say are beautiful, um, which makes me excited because, uh, my whole dad's side of my family, my, my whole non-Japanese side of the family, we are what would be considered obese. So like rock on, like almost all of us and, and hereditarily I've kind of, kind of always expected that I would get a little bit heavier before we started this conversation when we were just on zoom, uh, I was, right. I was talking about my chins. Um, so do you see a connection there with what I'm saying or am I trying to extrapolate too much? Oh no, I see, a, I see a perfect connection because it goes back into reality framing, right? Like we kind of expand our window for what we expect out of human beings when we change the way we um when we change the way we imagine them throughout the various imageries that we see in media on the internet on things that are displayed to us on a day-to-day -day basis and this kind of goes to the point of like how media itself like has become infinitely more powerful with the advent of ai technologies the ability to constantly replicate itself over and over again through infinite iterations and appear before our eyes on the screen to affect and direct our preferences, our behaviors, and our realities in ways that exist beyond our own conceptions or our own conscious understanding. So I think, I mean, I think it is it is a huge step that we're starting to accept multiple bodies, but I think also it's a necessary one because as this media has reached a wider audience and an emotionally contentious one, it's almost responding to that audience's innate demand to be recognized, right? And to like, you know, it's 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 a, it's a way that the media can have the best of both worlds. They can they will still prey on your insecurities. They will still show you images that that make you feel lesser than what you are in a completely unjustifiable way. But they'll also show you images that verify you, because in the end, the mind is allured and attracted to both. So, I mean, I think mm -hmm. I think it's a it's a good step, but it's really a bomb. It's really a multifaceted way to address our various preferences and approach to to life and desire.
So, um, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, it's also a kind of thing too, where I, I feel like, uh, okay. With pandemic happening now, we are, we are basically like 10 solid months into a semi lockdown state here in the U S there are countries that have almost totally kicked this problem aside, but here we are still kind of being at home. And I, I live alone. I had a roommate for quite a while, but he, uh, found a different place. And, and, uh, so I'm basically living alone. And which means that like nearly all of my social communication and my connection with the outside world is either watching TV, which I do a little bit and being on online, which I do nearly constantly. Um, and with that, I just, I try to recognize the limitations, right. Of internet dialogue versus real life dialogue. Um, and I would consider what you and I are doing right now closer to real life dialogue, even though it's taking place online. Even though it's being uh, kind of, um, <laughs> disseminated through the internet medium <laughs> right you're in hoboken new jersey though right 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 and other people are viewing this interaction are viewing it over the internet disseminated by it kind of driven to their facebook pages or their youtube pages based on the way those companies have modeled what they'd want to see at the given time <laughs> right yeah well thank you for challenging what i was saying there because it's totally <laughs> true but 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 my issue with like, okay, the brevity of like how we try to throw our little thoughts out into the internet and make them, especially like on a site like Twitter, or I would say TikTok, where like people mm -hmm. are trying to gain followers and trying to cultivate like, okay, I have this ideology, follow me, you'll see more like great takes that, that, that feed and reinforce what you believe, right? And so mm -hmm. just like my example, because I am interested in this body image conversation, I haven't really had one in the many episodes that I've done on the show. Um, it seems like there immediately has to be some kind of like war between, um, people who are like all about body positivity and people mm -hmm. who like have, like have are anti body positivity. I don't know if they well, have a good the, the health term. side, right? Uh, exactly. The, Pe because yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like the, yeah. like, you know, Joe Rogan's of the world who kind of will be like critiquing the idea of body mm -hmm. positivity because, that like he's always talking about like people need to like work out more and like make sure their immune system is better and um mm. you know it's like the the what i would love to see is just like these two um arguments both have like a really strong case to make and can do so without necessarily being at each other's throats being combative well, I, th all I think the time. to kind of like frame the what you're describing here there's a thesis and there's an antithesis right like two countervailing mm. theses right one thesis of body positivity of like accepting and embracing people as they are as they are currently in the state they're in right and and accepting that and being appreciative of that seeing the beauty in it and that's that's an amazing thing and then you have the counter thesis which is that uh, body positivity is discouraging men from perfection. Men, generally speaking, right, of, all, of all genders, are discouraging people from reaching perfection, from reaching excellence, from bettering themselves. You know, it, it creates a sense of uh, mundacity and just uh, kind of self, it's like self-immolation, lighting, one, lighting oneself on fire and just sitting in the ashes and accepting one's, you know, accepting one's fate and like loving this reality about themselves that they may really want to change. And that's also mm. a harsh, perhaps, you know, reasonable conviction. But I think there is a synthesis to be made here, right? And the, and the synthesis is that you can both love your body as it is, display it, portray it, embrace it, become it. And in doing so, you might be best apt to keep the body healthy, 
right? Like you, there are so many different weight classes in which you can be healthy. I think there's a very, very wide distribution. And also, I don't think health is the only goal, right? Like there's a big issue with like the Joe, the Joe Rogan side is they hold health as, as, high, as the highest standard. I think mm. happiness is the highest standard, honestly. Mm. And if some people are, are happiest, perhaps not being the most healthy they can be, then it's not our place to shame them. It's not our place mm. to make them feel bad because they made those choices. We might think, you know, it's this hubris that comes from us that we're like, um, it's this great hubris that says that you will be happier if you sacrifice your body as it is now, your diet, your habituations as they are now, and just be really healthy. And for some people, that makes their life miserable, right? Perhaps mm. they are happy in their body. And like, why is it society's job to shame them into doing it otherwise? Right. You know, I, th- I mean, I th- BMI, I body mass... Right. Well, I mean, the the construction of what we consider healthy, you know, um, to me just seems like, you know, you talked mm. about objectivity and subjectivity. It seems mm. like there is such an objective nature that people will put into it. And honestly, too, like we haven't talked about necessarily um, people who what it means to be healthy. become. Yeah. But people who yeah. um, become so thin that um, like people right. will say, oh, oh, you don't look healthy. Eat a sandwich. Um, so. Just that idea that like, okay, there are 7 billion plus people on earth. Every one mm-hmm. of them has like, what, one mm-hmm. ideal point at which they are the most healthy? Like, I tune my guitar, right? Sometimes my mm-hmm. guitar is a little sharp and a little flat. Um, and like, the idea that like, you have to be right on, you can't be too thin, can't be too heavy. This is right. the point at which you are the most healthy. It just doesn't seem like that's reality. Um, right. Well, well. To, to be fair, on the outside, I guess they don't just have one point. They have like a whole spectrum of like you know, it's, it's, it is a scale, right? There's a certain BMI that is healthy body weight, right? It's not just one point. So like, mm. there is there is a certain conception, like a, a broad conception of that, which constitutes health. But this whole concept of disgust and shame is, I think, creates more mental unhealth. Right? Like you have to think about health isn't just of the body, but it's of the mind and the soul. Right? And if you're right. going to go out and you're going to gaslight people and you're going to tear apart their mental health because of the way they look, you're worsening a situation that you're trying to solve. You're acting counterintuitively. <laughs> That's what people like Joe Rogan are doing when they're out there making people who are he- heavier than the norm feel terrible about themselves because neither they're not solving the issue, but they're worsening those people's health. They're worsening their conception mm. about themselves and leaving them less happy. I think there are healthy ways to have discussions about health, and that's just not one of them. So, so this going back to my point as to like what the synthesis is, is the synthesis is both accepting one for oneself, but also p- helping people realize where they want to be, right? And the b- way right. to help people realize where they want to be isn't by shaming, beating them down, excluding them, but it is a very compassionate, open, and authentic process, a process that occurs in good faith, where people can realize, hey, maybe... I want to get a bit slimmer and I'm going to go out and do that and feel no shame, feel no shame about being a heavy guy in the gym, feel no shame about being that guy in the, in the uh, light foods aisle in the grocery store. Mm. So, so I think there's, there, there's just a much better way to go about it than we are approaching it today. You know, what's uh, an aisle that I find myself in often as a low income person. And I think it's the most hilarious euphemism meal mm. solutions. Which is just frozen TV dinners. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> meal solutions i love it well you have a lot of like really great in-depth knowledge about health and public health through um your experience your work experience um but i also like i'm really interested in unpacking for just a minute this um podcasting and specifically the biggest podcaster in the world i heard joe rogan compared to like the oprah winfrey of men <laughs> and uh i don't want to devote exist. too much you time can't to him have that <laughs> right right yeah he's not giving away cars to a, an audience um but um i just think uh it's interesting because like wh okay i'm definitely the kind of person who like um to an extent that is that I believe is socially responsible, I will consume mm. media that I I strongly in many cases disagree with, um, mm. and it's not and I feel like people who believe that you should only you should never consume media that's problematic, um, they have their worldview and I have mine right and they're different, um, and so I will listen to things sometimes specifically because I know I'm going to disagree, but um, so like when he has like Ben Shapiro on, I listen and I'm like thinking of all of my counter arguments in my head and like sometimes like cussing at them and stuff. But, um, yeah. what I do like, and, and the thing that makes him so successful, one of the many things, um, but that makes him so successful and that I admire is you take some of the most famous people who have become so famous based on what, like the, the old TV and news media cycle that kind of selects, you know, who is allowed to become famous and then has this three hour conversation with them to the point where mm -hmm. it's like one of the rawest ways to experience who they really are as a person. And what I love about that is the artifice has to fade away on some level, you know, right. um, like I think of Kanye West, but he also does long form interviews with other people. But like I think of just, Elon Musk smoking weed like on the Joe Rogan show. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things. And like that episode was fine. The next one I thought was not that great. But um yeah, I mean that's that's really interesting to me because we had we live in this brevity soaked media landscape um and you know, actually I was watching a a interview with um Sean Sean Ono Lennon, the the son of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And yeah. uh he he was talking about how um his though it's cliche to say it like his he felt his dad was very uh before his time um they were filming themselves a lot like in the 70s when that stuff was expensive to do and um which we all film ourselves a lot more nowadays um mm -hmm. and really trying to do things that make the artifice fade away that present mm -hmm. like you know and, and it was and yoko had a big influence on that um and to to let you speak for a little bit because I'm kind of going in so many different places. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, what do you, what's your take on seeing like it's almost like we don't even need celebrities anymore <laughs> because like it shows that they're very much regular people. Our stuff just shows up right next to theirs on social feeds, and uh, we the average people. I think of like this amazing Sarah Cooper woman who does these like Trump uh, lip lip dub things. I don't know if you've seen that. They're fucking hilarious. Right. Um, I don't know. What's what's your thing? I, I think it's a positive thing to see that celebrities don't rule the world anymore. Well, it's interesting because it's not that celebrities don't rule the world anymore. It's that anybody can become a celebrity. 
Mm. It's, 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 it's that. It's that. Um, yeah, and I think this goes back to like characters like Ryan Higa, like the YouTube days of people <laughs> who just do silly shit on the internet. It becomes viral, and then they become a celebrity. And it's. Right. I thought that was. Um, I thought that that whole process was was pretty incredible. Um, I also I also think it's like um, it's interesting because um, let me think. So I think I think it's interesting because you take Marilyn Monroe as a great example, right? Like huge celebrity, big movie yeah. star, right? But she was back in the in the sixties, right? And so in the in the in the sixties, she would go on the New York subway. She's so good at controlling her countenance and her expression that she mm. could just blend in to the New York crowd, right? Mm. Come out of the subway and then suddenly like lift her face up and everyone would see it's Marilyn Monroe, right? But mm. she could lead a normal life. She was also a, a mom. Like she raised a family at home, like, and she dedicated. So it's like for for celebrities then versus celebrities now, there was a lot more privacy, right? So like, whereas now like we value that sort of rawness and authenticity that comes in celebrities. I think so many celebrities are also tired and sick of like having their most innermost selves constantly revealed by the paparazzi and by public media as it shows itself. And we saw with the British Royal family, great, great example of, uh, of how like Harry and his wife literally ran away from that because they were yeah. tired of the British tabloids. I mean, another example is Michel Foucault literally like lived out his life in California because he's a celebrity in France. And he's like, I'm having a great time being a gay philosopher in California. Like, I'm just a normal dude here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's 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 really really interesting. Like, uh, so in some ways, like the when when there is a it's like the concept of Foucault. Actually, go back to Foucault. The concept of the panopticon, right? That that you don't know when other people are peering into you, right? You can you can't peer out, but everyone else can peer in. And how does that affect who you are? We, it's 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 a very powerful thing, and and I think um, I think like no matter the cam- when the camera's on you, it's it's gonna change you, it's gonna shape you, and I think I think it's really interesting uh, that how it affects celebrities for better or worse. Um, I think like on on the topic of Joe Rogan, very interesting. I, mean, I think great example of of toxic masculinity there. Like, <laughs> like and like that doesn't like take away like he does a lot of great work. Um, really uh, making these celebrities seem more human than the pop than paparazzi. Paparazzi dra- dramatizes everything. But Joe Rogan sure, and I think he can also be uh, not to cut you off too much. Um, he can be a warm, inviting, and mm-hmm. seemingly at times like, also a genuine, compassionate person. And also embody mm-hmm. traits of toxic masculinity that deserve to right. be discussed and critiqued, you know? Right. So I don't absolutely. want people to just immediately turn turn you off when you say, what, Joe Rogan, toxic masculinity, fuck you, libtard, yeah, or whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, like no, there's there there's those things embody the same space sometimes. Yeah, like, the thing is, you have to, like I said, this goes back into, like, our framing of everything as, as binary, as clearly constructed, as well-defined. I mean, it's all so complicated, right? You can both like be pretty, like you know, reasonably high on the spectrum of toxic masculinity, but still be an incredible person. Like, still, like I mean, outside of that, still be really good at um, at creating human relationships, at cultivating um, openness in ways that shouldn't be overlooked. Like, I think, you know, it's the other thing. Like, once everyone, once people become celebrities and celebrities become so accessible, then everyone also becomes a critic. And becoming a critic is the easiest thing because everyone's 
flaws. Right. And when people are public, you see all their flaws, right? And you can yeah. just go out and, and tear them apart, you know, break them to pieces. But I think it's uh, it's a lot more valuable to see, or like there's a lot more value too, seeing where uh, people really add value, like where people really create in ways that um, that often that often go over, overlooked in like our, our stream of criticism versus pure praise. Oftentimes, like people fall in between. I love that you brought up um, masculinity in the way that you did because I think that there can be a lot of gatekeeping within the idea of being a man um, mm -hmm. that is enforced in so many different directions. And mm -hmm. um, by the time you get to like your age or my age, I'm 26. What are you, 24, 23? 23. Turning 24 20. in two days. Oh, right on. Happy early birthday. Uh, and I'm turning 27 in four days. Um, wow. We're yeah, you're the man. Yeah, right on. Um, right. And I'm pretty dang secure in who I am, but like an 11, 12, 13 year old or younger is almost never going to be totally secure in who they are. I mean, they, they don't even have basic autonomy yet. So it's those mm -hmm. times when you're so susceptible to um, these constructed ideas and you want to be a part of you know, people who understand your experience. So you might join a sports team and almost all the sports are, uh, not co-ed at the competitive level. And so, um, but, and so, but it's a little oversimplified to just say all football players are, um, jock dickheads, you know, like, um, and that's, and I want to kind of potentially bring our conversation to Carleton college where we had so many good experiences in the two years that we overlapped there. Um, mm. you know, I'll just name shout out Chris Anisowitz. He was a football player and <laughs> uh, was like an amazingly like warm, fun, kind person who also did a project where he created um, backpacks that were also solar panels and did that mm -hmm. with the youth, you know, um, and uh, just just I really loved that space of Carlton um, for that reason. There were certainly issues that I had with some of the ways that the culture played out and mm -hmm. things that I, that I, that I on a personal level, I thought were very unfair that played out um, the way people could, would get demonized for certain things that wouldn't necessarily be fair. But I mean, I loved going to a small liberal arts college because um, you almost necessarily had to know pretty well the people that you didn't jive with, you know, mm -hmm. at a, at a big university, you'll have like, oh, those are those people and they live in the frat houses and like maybe I have one bio lecture with them in a room of 500 people, but I don't have any cross-pollination in my friendships mm -hmm. with them. Um, so sometimes I think it was a big scam, <laughs> like liberal arts colleges uh, or, right. or the way that like college is priced in general. Um, but right. uh, most of the time I really am grateful for um, those connections. Uh, how do you feel kind of coming on to the other side of it? Well, so it's it's interesting because the way colleges are priced in so many ways is what enabled so many like more low income people to middle income people to be represented at colleges. Like it is a way of like a regressive taxation system kind of becoming progressive for the four years richer sending their kids to school. <laughs> right. Cause it's like, because they get so it. much endowment from the from the people who can pay it. That they do yep. the financial aid for yep. the people who can't, right? I, I mean, I was part of the, I was involved in the admissions and financial aid. I was the uh, one of the financial aid uh, liaisons 
mm-hmm. my sophomore year at Carleton, and they so heavily rely on the full payers. Those are paying 60 to like now over 70K a year to like finance, I mean, other people. And, and I think I think that's a great thing. Like, I think the those are paying the sticker price probably should be paying that much. You know, I think like they need to because if you look at like how they pay taxes in society, right? The wealthy predominantly pay taxes like capital gains tax, and the marginal rate for capital gains tax is twenty percent, top fifteen to twenty percent, right? Whereas the marginal income tax rate for like middle income earners becomes around like twenty five percent, right? And mm. so and so we actually see like a somewhat regressive tax system. Like Mitt Romney paid what fourteen percent. Not surprising. Honest taxes, right? Because the rich predominantly earn money on capital gains, on, on earning money through selling shares, through selling options, through selling their business, through conducting business. Whereas the rest of the people make money on in traditional income, which is taxed usually at a higher rate and is also subject to payroll taxes, which is usually makes it much higher. And um, the payroll tax is complicated, right? Because like you see 7% taken off your paycheck, but really there's another hidden 7% your employer is also paying. But most of that incident falls falls upon you. Like the worker is really paying an extra 15% in taxes, which the rich is not when they pay capital gains. Oh, it's a fascinating discussion to have because, you know, I find that, you know, we're going to have to really understand, for example, Trumpism, in the very near future, hopefully, but historically we'll have a, a clearer window into why this ideology has taken hold so much. And I think one of the big ones um, mm. is that everyday working class people, people who, like, you know, my neighbors here um, in what would be considered like an overlooked part of, of America, I guess, um, they completely are bought into the idea that like there's too much government that takes too much of their money. Right. Mm. And so, um, without looking too much into like, okay, the Trump tax cuts, I believe it's 83% of the benefit, uh, went to the top 1%, Yeah, but it's a tax yeah, 1. cut. 2 trillion, yeah. 1.2 yeah. trillion. Out of yeah. 2 trillion. Yep. Yep. Go on. Yeah. So, but it's a tax cut, you know? So it's kind of like, well, people are recognizing like within their own life with their paycheck, like they, they see their federal uh, income tax and their social security and then the state level and then the county level. And then if you live in a city, municipal taxes, um, so far we've agreed on a lot of things. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I, I shouted out your sort of libertarian streak and, um, (laughs) do we need all this government? (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) What do you think about the amount of government that a person who lives in a city is uh, under the jurisdiction of? Well, so that's that's a great question. And I can see why a lot of these people are upset. You know, people made a point that like, oh, look, Trump paid even less in taxes than you do. And like had photos of like their dilapidated homes. And you're like, you're paying off. And it's funny because that actually like plays into the Republican rhetoric that the middle class mm. is being taxed way much too highly. And a great example is of this is like, I am all for slashing the corporate tax rate because everyone's like, oh, like it's the, the corporation, these separate entities that pay it. But at the end of the day, corporations are the summation of the people who they make up. Like employee, when, when corporations, when they cut taxes in corporations, employees saw, saw raises, right? It wasn't, didn't just go to the CEOs and the shareholders, like the direct employees of the corporations actually see more benefits and more raises because companies can afford to pay out more to their workers. Right. And then on, on the other hand, you also look at 
things like, um, and it's also a double tax, right? Because you're first funneling that, uh, you're first taxing the corporation. Then when the corporation pays the employees, you're taxing the corporation for doing that. And then when the shareholders sell their shares, you're taxing the shareholders for doing that. So you're, you're adding so many, for any transaction, you're adding adding another layer of taxation, which sort yeah. of dilutes the, the sincere cost of the entire process. But I still think it's funny because relative to other countries, like U.S. taxes much less compared to like U.K. and France, in part mm. because we don't have a national healthcare system. Uh, that's that's a big that's a big reason why. But also in part because you look at um, you look at a lot of middle class people, and they are tired of having to like you know buck under and pay such a big share of their income. Because you think the biggest share of the tax, like of our revenue, comes from the top ten percent of earners, but the largest share of the income is lost for middle income earners who are having to pay into the system, and and it's it's ridiculous. You know, if you are earning, let's say, sixty thousand dollars a year, you and you're not married and you're single, you, you know, this is before you have a wife and kids, you're only going to be taking home about forty five k after you have like city, state, income, federal taxes. And this is not even including property and sales tax, which factors into that. So right. so the question is like, when you, the question is when you're asking about how much government we need, it's more so like, how can you make the government more efficient and less bloated? You know, like ha- having all these extraneous costs, like a massive military bureaucracy, for instance. Or looking at another difference, like New York, I live in Hoboken, where there's no city income tax and there's lower sales tax. Whereas New York City, you have a city income tax of roughly 3.5 to 4%, which is insane. Because on top of hmm. all your other income, you're also having another 3.5 to 4% of just city tax. And on top of that, a 9% sales tax. It's fucking crazy. I mean, like, mind I land. feel like it would be a lot closer to justified if the MTA was close to free. I'm so the, the MTA, in my opinion, costs way too much. It's probably up to $3 now. Yeah, it's two. It's two seventy five swipe, two seventy five swipe, which is which is a lot. But I think what makes it so crazy is that, like, I mean, hobo, can you walk around? I mean, there's no no income tax, but it's like it's clean, it's safe. Like, there's transportation all around. I mean, I know it's just one square mile. It's like its own borough almost, but Mm. it's own like little neighborhood. But New York, it's like you're paying all this money, and you're like asking, where does it go? You know, it's, and it, a lot of it is these like, very strong you know, public sector unions, these union workers who are, you know, the, the, the teachers union and the police union and the construction union who are getting way, way overpaid compared to like some workers with, sim- with the similar credentials in other cities. And at the expense of all the other workers in that city, at the expense of all the other employees. And this is creating a glut because now you see the pandemic, people are like, shit, is it really worth that I'm paying all this? extra in taxes living in this overpriced city which is not even kept clean and which is now unsafe like is it even (laughs) worth it you know like the city's facing a budget crisis because people middle class to upper income are are leaving they're they're getting out you know they're coming to places like jersey or they're they're going to the going to the suburbs or going back home because for them like having a residence in new york is just not worth how expensive it is well, I'm a, I really appreciate Andrew Yang as a human being, and I like his podcast, for example, a lot. Yang Speaks. Um, mm. And it was an incredibly long shot to think that he would be able to win the presidency as somebody with no previous political experience and who wasn't a celebrity in any kind of way before. Um, right. But he, he talks a lot about um, a value-add attacks um, mm. where like every Amazon transaction, every eBay transaction would um, – 
then be taxed a little bit and he wants to use that to fund cash relief, uh, universal basic income. Um, but really why I'm bringing him up, because I don't have that much dexterity on tax code issues. And there are other things I'd love to chat with you about that are a little less mathy. I can give you like a high level like critique of this proposal. So Europe sure. has a value added tax, right? But their state and local municipalities are often not really funded by sales tax, right? Like state mm. and local governments really depend on sales tax, which is like very similar to value added tax, to like fund literally their entire operation. Texas sales mm-hmm. tax, New Jersey sales tax, New York, right? And and without that, they they wouldn't really be able to operate. If you tax, like, so if you're going to New Yorker and saying, all right, you're only paying nine percent taxes on your shipments from Amazon, we're going to tack another five percent on that, five percentage points. So now for anything you buy, you're paying fourteen percent. Well, at that point, you're a New Yorker. You're like, all right, I'm just going to like go to Pennsylvania, get everything shipped into Pennsylvania, and bring it back here. Because that's more efficient than like buying a TV and shipping it here, buying a six thousand, buying like a two thousand dollar TV and paying two hundred and eighty dollars in taxes for it, which is crazy. So it's like, so it's like looking at within our current system, we can say yeah, value added tax, but it wouldn't work in in cohort with all of the other like sales tax and local taxes. And at the same time, it's also regressive because which population spends most of its money in terms of sales related consumption? It's the lower middle class lower. and the middle class, right? And so those are the people who are going to be paying the brunt of those taxes. So once again, like you, you're going to throw some money in their account, but then you're also going to be pulling just as much and run even more out through the VAT. So yeah. I, 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 think, uh, I think that's another example of how government welfare has been very inept in like actually taking money away from like, and creating sort of resentment between middle class, traditionally middle class workers and people and, and lower class. Like you have a clear divide between like the rural suburban middle class versus the urban poor. And I think a big part of that is the way government has designed welfare policy. And I think value added tax will just exacerbate that. Solid critique given. Um, I'll use Yang as a point to get to like Georgia, the Senate and the Biden, the Biden, mm-hmm. um, uh, agenda and in terms of how much Biden will will be able to accomplish from his agenda but all I really mm-hmm. wanted to say to finish the point about Yang was um he like people that, that are really like Yang Yang people want him to run for mayor of New York City um to cuz it's a 2021 race and I I I'm almost certain that he won't do it uh, and I think that might be wise because first of all that office is just a shit show. There's so much go- going on that he would be able to get very little credit for being able to like revitalize things in New York. Um, he won't be able to. For, he right. won't be, yeah, right. The mayor's not a god. Right. And, for, and furthermore, <laughs> sometimes municipal politics don't lend yourself to being able to like go into the white house and especially to be able to express like your progressive credentials. Cause then he's going to be dealing with NYPD and that's almost certainly going to be a big source of controversy. Um, mm. whether he's tough on them or light on them, it's just such a, the police departments are so, um, there's such a divided and political view of how people assess their work, um, nowadays, which I think is probably a worthwhile thing. People are paying a lot of attention to it, but I just don't think it'd be a good jumping off point for him. I do see where he is trying to sort of rebuild trust with the the sort of Democratic Party and the people who are really in power in the Democratic Party because he ran kind of an outsider campaign and then endorsed a lot of uh, 
challengers against incumbents. And now he's, mm-hmm. I think, part of him. He's moving to Georgia. Him and I think his family, or at least his wife Evelyn, they're moving to Georgia to try to um, get John Ossoff and and um, Raphael yeah. Warnock elected uh, to those Senate seats. Yeah. And um, yeah, we talked about this a bit the other night, but like, I think it's going to be an uphill battle for the Democrats to win those seats. Um, and then you'd be looking at divided government right off the bat, which, which people aren't really used to seeing. Obama had, um, the house and the Senate when he was elected, Trump for had the years. house in the, for, for two, two years. years. For, right. Yeah. But still, the, but that's, yeah, the, true. But not right when a president begins is all I'm saying. Right. Like, that's, that's a good that's point. That's, that's a point. And that's, yeah. 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 Um, cause like the, uh, affordable care act, Obamacare, they didn't have to get Republican votes for it. They just figured out what they could pass as a democratic piece of legislation and got it through. Um, mm-hmm. so, and then you, I don't know, like you already have people trying to write the history books about Joe Biden and saying he's a do nothing guy. He hasn't done anything in 47 years. He's sleepy and whatever. And it's like, um, I, I, mm-hmm. I worry that he won't be able to get much done particularly if mitch mcconnell stays the senate majority leader do you think how do you think those races are going to go oh well i think historically you've seen and but like you know how much does history matter at this point georgia did go blue in the presidential race (laughs) true but i i I do think historically like republicans have had an advantage in the runoff is democrats is you know are more likely to show up to general elections to the general presidential elections whereas Republicans are more likely to turn up to the midterm elections or more likely to turn up to runoffs. Because in all in all, Republicans are just more excited about their politics than the Democrats are. Like they're more mm. excited and, and passionate. Like for instance, Republicans are more likely to vote on issues like the Supreme Court, right? A mm. lot of Republicans held their nose and voted for Trump because they wanted those justices and they fucking got him. Like, whereas Democrats are like, ah, I'm going to vote for Gary Johnson and Jill Stein because my values. Right. Mm. And this, this goes back to like the uh, the underlying critique I have of the Democratic Party is that there's so much of a divide between pragmatists and the radicals. Right. But what's funny about the Republican Party is that the radicals got the pragmatists on their side by playing practically. Right. Like pragmatists mm. are forced practically to align with Trump because they realize he was really the only Democratic option for them. And he could practically deliver on everything they wanted. The Supreme Court justices, the tax cuts, the military budget. Republicans got a sweet deal for four years by holding their nose and voting for the guy they didn't want. Right, the, the never Trumpers lost the Jeff Flake side, the, that side. All right, and yeah. you can say that they got some some due deliverance at the end of four years. But is getting a Democratic president really winning if you're a Republican? No, it's just losing a little less if you're a never Trump Republican. So they they <laughs> lost, they got screwed. But you 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 t- you talk about like all the pragmatists who line behind Trump and they got their sweet Republican agenda. They're doing great. Uh, whereas you look yeah. at the progressives and they're just. The, the they're both sides are just so stubborn and so unwilling to shift that a um, great example is the the Alex Morse Richie Neal right the, the Alex Morse Richie Neal race in Massachusetts Massachusetts yeah they're 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 just so they're just so they're just so stubborn and um, that's an interesting point because I was going to say where the divide comes across in the Democratic Party is often geographic. And the case you brought up is not so much that case because they're in the same area. But like um, I, Connor Lamb, you know, in his Western Pennsylvania district basically talks about how 
AOC in her Bronx and Queens, New York district, um, is kind of he, he, he kind of blames her for um, some of the loss of the Democratic seats in these moderate areas because of the defund the police rhetoric, the Medicare for all rhetoric. Those are the two things where he uh, and other more moderate um, Democrats are kind of angry about where um, the progressive wing has taken the party. I'm not as angry about that. Uh, and to me, where I fall on this is that, I mean, Trump ran an anti-Bernie campaign against Biden. <laughs> like, he was able to frame Biden as being a socialist, and that actually caught on it with a lot of places. And so Lord, they're going to... They're going to they're, they're gonna, like call you a socialist whether you fight for um, more, I don't know, humane policies or not or, or sweeping policies or not. So just go for it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, I'll, 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 I'll speak to that point. Right. So it's it's it's, it's very interesting that you that you that you bring up this uh, this uh, this point about them framing Biden as a socialist. And if you if you look at it, it's because. He had the unity task force with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren after he mm -hmm. won the primary, right? And that was to get his supporters and Bernie and Warren's side on board because they, as the Democrats saw last election, it was those Jill Stein voters, those third-party voters, the voters who didn't show up that lost. Or who went for states. Trump, who wanted Bernie, but then went for Trump. Yeah, to some extent, but it was really like you look at the margins in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Like, if those Jill Stein voters went for went for uh, Hillary, Hillary would have won. Or also, mm -hmm. Bernie voters who just didn't show up, right? It was yeah. decided it's not worth it, right? And like those those voters, those voters matter. Those voices matter. So, so he created this unity task force, and Biden, in all honesty, had one of the most progressive platforms in the history of American politics as people predicted, right? Because Bernie had shifted the Overton window of the Democratic Party starting in 2016, so far left, that it became much more easier to label them socialists. I mean, Biden wanted to upend the whole 401k program and change it to a tax credit, right? Biden wanted to tax uh, capital gains earned at above a million dollars at 40%. Biden wanted to impose the payroll tax on people earning, for, people earning over $400,000, right? These radical policies that no one would have ever considered until Biden, like, ran as president. So you had Fox News broadcasters, you had the Trump side airing on this 24-7. And also the fact that AOC and Bernie made it to such a national, pre national, uh, national presence, right? Because in the past, these progressives are sort of stuck to, stuck, like, tucked away in their crazy corners and corridors in, like, the Northeast and in Washington, like, Pramila, like, kind of tucked away. But now when they're, like, now, because of media and the way you can just, they, they, they want to be a national presence because they want to be more powerful. They want their voices heard. But then the other side amplifies them as well to their own demographic, their own people, and, and turns their own base out in turn. So it's like this, this, this thesis antithesis effect, once again, like the two, the two countervailing forms sort of perpetuating and promoting each other on either side. And you get very, very much an elongated horseshoe. And it's 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 hard. You can't you can't really escape that escape that paradigm. It is hard. Where I think they win with the the high standards of someone like a Bernie voter is two things. One, a long record or at least a consistent record of integrity for the values that you're fighting for. That's where <laughs> Hillary Clinton didn't really pass the sniff test for some people. Is basically looking at the super predators issue and and um, you know long history of not being 
ardently progressive, but then deciding to run a campaign that was at least in terms of centering um, identity and in terms of centering trying to trying to court the democratic base it didn't it didn't appear to have enough integrity so that's one thing but the other one where i really think that the progressive wing wins is when they are able in a difficult media landscape um i will i will say to highlight the fact that they don't view their policies as being progressive when bernie says look should a major country today not guarantee healthcare as a right but not a privilege I don't think that's radical, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. When, uh, they talk about how there are so many places that function well, that are healthy, that do these things, particularly Medicare for all, for all. And, uh, you know, you said a national, um, health, uh, system rather, um, and something akin to a green new deal or, or a bold piece of climate change legislation, making the case and trying to make the case. And I know it's really hard for the kinds of voters that they're trying to reach and say, this is not radical. Um, that's where I think that they are able to make the most traction, but right. you, you need the right candidate. The, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, I see that point, but it's not. So if you look at the way the electoral college is framed, particularly post gerrymandered house, the Senate and the presidency, it doesn't favor the clear majority of, of urban progressive voters at all, and uh, and and the and the re and the reason for that is um, is deliberate. With, uh, yeah, I mean it's deliberate. It's just, it's been framed in our constitution. But the but the reason for that is because when you have progressives kind of move to New Jersey, New York, high populated coastal states, right? But you have like conservatives or like you know red leaning people more spread out across the Midwest and the South. They're going to become disproportionately more more powerful to the point where like a 538 um nate silver made the analysis that if uh we were to add dc guam and puerto rico estates the senate would still favor republicans in terms of the in terms of the vote separation it was like a if 50 percent of americans are actually republican even mm. if you were to add those three extra states the senate would still favor the republican party because that's how much institutional power um the uh the kind of like rural, more conservative voices have. So Connor Lamb has a point. This is where like pragmatism has a point. Like he has to say like the way the American electoral landscape and structures are framed today, progressive, like radical progressivism will only hold the Democratic Party back because the rhetoric, the framing, the understanding is so alien to the voters who have disproportionate power on the political system. My uh, high school teacher, Martin Ball, used to say, if liberals, if progressives really want to take back this country, they'll move away from the coasts. And mm. uh, that's that's what we're seeing, I think. Because um, yeah, it's hard that. for yeah, me to yeah. argue. Because, I can, because again, it's, it's, it's like I can argue so much for why I really want to see these kinds of systemic changes. And then yeah. under the system that we have, like being able to build that out in an electoral movement, like yeah. ugh, it's, it's, it's hard. Obama was like, you know, in moderate. some ways, like the most, uh, yeah, but like when he ran his campaign, he ran as a very transformational candidate. He didn't support same sex marriage, but he, he was, he was pretty, um, leftist in, in terms of his rhetoric, um, mm. I would say in many ways, or at least he projected the image that people that, that leftists yes. were able to like kind of latch onto, um, mm. 
and like he was like kind of like a once in a generation figure. Like Biden got a got elected. Like if if Biden wasn't Obama's VP, Biden's not the president elect right now. You know, right. like Obama's yeah. still like show, even though he's widely hated by a lot of people, he's beloved by a lot of other people. And it's like mm. that could have been our guy. And and mm. the Affordable Care Act was a a big, a significant change. But that's by far the most the biggest thing he was able to do with his presidency and who knows right. maybe and it'll get undued now in the supreme court well yeah, i don't think it's going to get undone in the supreme court undone. and that's, that's a separate issue like I, I mean i think they very much indicated that they don't agree with the severability clause if you um, but like that's that's a that's a separate argument i think i think going back to like your your original point about um about like the progressives moving out of the coast, this is happening not because they want to, but because they have to. Because the coasts are becoming unaffordable. <laughs> like, yeah, California, New York, like you can't you can't live. You know, you have to like kind of sell your soul and cease to be progressive <laughs> to work in those cities and and survive there livably. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> myself, like like you can't you can't both hold on to progressive values and really appreciate living there. So. That's where you're seeing like a lot of progressives move into places like cities and Minnesota and Arizona and Texas, just because they're more affordable. Like I have a lot of progressive friends who just moved to Houston. You know, typically if I was to think about these guys, I'd be like, oh, they'd be moving to places like New York City or or Seattle. But mm-hmm. no, they're moving to Houston because it's affordable, and um, it's it's really it's, it's really interesting interesting to see that like about how that's going to shape the future. You know how, like the California sprawl, like having a million immigrants in the past decade, you know, is is actually shaping the politics around California. It's making Nevada more reliably blue. It's making Colorado more reliably blue. It's flipped Arizona blue, and it might even flip Texas blue because you're having California and Washington people can't afford to live there. So there's all these techies, all these left leaning sort of nerdy guys and nerdy fans are just moving into these states that they would have even considered because that's where the companies are moving that's where jobs are and affordability is fun fact last i heard houston which of course is the fourth largest city in the united states doesn't have a central recycling system the biggest Mm -hmm. city to not have a central recycling system um (laughs) which uh, yeah it shows that texas way of thinking in terms of what the government's uh responsibilities are but i've heard horror stories of people people uh, like highways full of like with tons of trash on the on the side of the highways because people just they have a view about it where it's just just throw it out i don't know i would never see that here in eugene eugene is like is verdant and green and people really take pride in um, well, right. And it's, I mean, it's not necessarily fair to generalize there because you go to like Wyoming sure. and Montana, which are also red leading areas and people are very conscious about their uh, footprint on the earth. Um, but I also think it's it's interesting because you mentioned that like um, a lot of the reason why a lot of progressive people. So you have like the the progressive like artists, etc. can't afford really living in these cities anymore. And then you also have like progressive people who work as techies and lawyers, which actually, believe it or not, like people with college educate people with college degrees are earning upper middle class, upper, upper middle tier incomes are tend to lean pretty heavily. Like I know someone who was a was a lawyer working in California, found the taxes so high, so he moved to Michigan, right? And he's, he's a Bernie supporter, so it's 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 really really interesting to to see that that progressive mm-hmm. people are actually benefiting from living 
and states with redder policies, but ironically, mm. are actually turning the states further left. <laughs> mm. So, so it's like this is kind of like the conservative side of the argument that it's like, oh, it's all a blight and disease. Like they go in, they they set terrible economic policies and ruin their own states, and then they come in and ruin ours. Which is, you know, I think it's pretty <laughs> silly, but I mean, I, I kind of see the the, the grain of truth to that is that um, there are prog- the progressives are not willing to live up to their ideals and are willing to sell out kind of ironically um, make their states set economic policies that hurt everyone at the end of the day. Mm, interesting. And, and we saw, we saw some of that got, get rejected in the ballot initiatives, the California, the ballot initiatives, this last election was very interesting. Um, hmm. How did they think, go? Uh, so like you had, you had, um, you had prop 15, which was to raise a tax, a commercial property tax. Um, to raise the commercial property tax. There's a lot of details to it, but on blanket, it was a, it was a tax raise on, on businesses. People rejected it. You had Prop 22, which was to um, reclassify Uber workers as contractors and not as full-time employees. That was kind of overwhelmingly accepted. You had a, another proposition that was to increase regulations on um, kidney dialysis clinics that were shot down. Right, so you had all of these um, these props. You had another prop for for affirmative action, and that was also shut down. So mm. you you're kind of seeing like a, a backlash also within some of these bluer states against more like progressive policies. And it's funny because that's coming from the ground level. That's coming from the level of voters, and it's showing that the legislature to some extent is out of touch, and these states is out of touch with what the voters and what they want. Another example is Illinois. The legislators really wanted to get rid of a constitutional amendment that had a flat tax. and They wanted a graduated income tax. And the voters also rejected that as well. So, so voters are really feeling like, like they don't want to have to face more direct taxes on themselves or direct regulations. They kind of want to be left alone in even some of the bluest parts of the country. Yeah, well, um, I, I think of it as... Uh, an uphill battle for people who, who, okay. I think that, let me say this. I haven't, I haven't ever thought about this too much, but we live in a, in a world, a society where identities are very important to people. And certainly I'm sympathetic to that. I identify as queer. I identify as uh half Asian. I, I, you know, and I have a lot of things that I identify with strongly and, and <coughs> but with a term like progressive, um, I, I look, I just look at politics, right? I look at policies. I look at what I think is going to be best in the long term. And I find that I agree with the rhetoric that are that is proposed more often than not with progressive people. But I think that it can be difficult to, I, to use progressive as too much of an, as, as such an identity that you run into these issues, like what you're talking about and the difficulty of, of, um, getting, getting things done. I'll bring up another topic that's similar is, you know, so, so, um, the sunrise movement, are you familiar? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So they're really, uh, they're pretty annoyed at, they're pissed at Biden right now because Biden Mm -hmm. appointed a senior advisor for the office of public engagement, um, who has taken a lot of fossil fuel money. His name's, um, Cedric Richmond. He is a congressman from Louisiana. He's represented most of, um, Baton Rouge, or, or sorry, New, New Orleans for quite a while, and uh, executive the executive director of Sunrise Movement, his name is um, Varshini Prakash. He called this an affront to the people who made President-elect Biden's victory possible. And this guy's not in the EPA. He's he, but he, he's um, a senior advisor who 
I guess is going to be a liaison in, in their um, view towards um, uh, between business interests and um, trying to enact mm-hmm. climate policy. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they view this somewhat as a betrayal. This guy was a congressional black caucus leader for quite some time. Uh, and I don't mm-hmm. know that much about him, um, but it's, you know, it's it's hard because like if you're really fighting for what they're fighting for, I think they they recognize that they're like neither party is is like has the historical impetus or the infrastructure or just maybe the political will to to get as tough on climate policy as you know these young um, sunrise people want. Um, I see a movement for a people's party here in Eugene, Oregon, being um, something where a lot of the the people who really identify themselves as progressives wanting to see like they're really tired of the Democratic Party. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means for the pragmatism of of not seeing more things like Trumpism just obliterating progress that's been made. So I, I again, like it's a it's a difficult thing. Uh, that's why I like podcasts because I can be long form. Like if I just posted something like progressives need to, I don't know, get more pragmatic, like people are understandably going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> people who I agree with and who I'm friends with. But like looking at these issues and thinking about what's the best approach, I don't know. I'm actually like kind of, I was kind of seeing someone in a relationship and she identifies as a, as a leftist and she's very, um, you know hardcore about it and she's got like memes are very important to her like they share all these memes and they they hate liberals they like she hates liberals she can't stand liberals and uh i'm just not there i don't i don't hate liberals i i think liberals um i i considered myself a liberal for most of my life and Mm. um i don't know demonizing the or or critiquing people in such a harsh uh a rhetorical way that maybe turns themselves off, turns them off from your cause. It just seems like a way to present yourself as pure and you having the right solution. But well, so what does that mean? Funny, if it's, it's not funny, going it's somewhere. It's funny to mention like the, the leftist and progressive objection of like rejection and abject attitudes towards liberalism. Because you see the same, like conservatives always go on and say, I hate liberalism. I hate liberalism, but they're remarkably good at working within liberal institutions. Like mm-hmm. Mitch, Mitch McConnell understands the, the liberal construction of the United States, particularly its law and its order and its ability that to the point in like fifth grade, he said he knew he wanted to be Senate majority leader because this man understands liberalism and knows how to play it, play to its fiddle. And, and as long as progressives, you know, live in this abstract, ideological, like morally pure, like, you know, like in a sense, like self-sniffing obsession, you know, this, this smugness. Right, and refuse to work within the liberal institutions that exist before them. They're just they're just going to flounder and 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 fail to achieve any any sustainable policy goals, right? Because if you look at it, like the Constitution of the United States is like is like is is a is a liberal. We set up a liberal system, a liberal order with some conservative tenets that makes radical change very difficult. Right, like the fact that he had a progressive candidate like Obama, and his only sole achievement, his really substantial achievement, was the Affordable Care Act. Right, he can only do that one thing because our Constitution makes it very hard to instate a lot of change very quickly. Right, like the last time we saw that kind of sweeping change was under FDR. Yeah. Now, uh, even Reagan, like he really didn't like change things as much as people said he did towards the right. Mm. So it's like 
very, very difficult to have long-lasting and stating, like you have like so lots of changes happen at once. And I think that's for the for the for the better, right? Because sometimes too much change is destabilizing, disconcerting, and at times can even be an argument. If you have too I much happening when at you're once, when you're talking about what you kind of refer to as this snarky leftism, I think there's a huge messaging and communications crisis because like, okay, um, here's one of those things where, okay, I like rising, um, the hill it's, uh, it's this YouTube show with, uh, uh, Sagar and Jetty who's conservative and crystal ball. Who's liberal, who's progressive. And they, they, well, they, they, they have really interesting discussions and they basically, both have their criticisms of I for for serious lack of a better term, woke politics. Um mm. and here's the thing. Woke politics, I think, are awesome. Like I think then <laughs> you hear me saying they're not I'm, you don't hear me saying are awesome. You hear me saying they're awesome because mm. they're striving for shit and the rectification and the reparation of shit that dem- that that morally I think demands to be eradicated. However, the messaging crisis is seriously challenging because like when you're talking and this is a, you know, education is a huge issue in this country. It's been chipped away at and chipped away at for so long. Public education, K through 12, since like the 80s is really, really in in decline. And that hurts me because, (laughs) because here's the thing, like. People who understand history, like our professor, my professor, Harry Williams from Carleton, mm. brilliant, brilliant person. He knows the history of uh, black struggle and racial justice challenges and mm. of oppression in this country. But it's so hard to teach people about that. It's so hard to mm. teach people who are not who don't have a proclivity to agree with all of the ways that microaggressions are an outgrowth of Jim Crow are an outgrowth of this long history of things that they were not taught or that they were resistant to because their families were resistant to them when they were taught these things. And so that's where it's really challenging because, um, the sort of college campus left, um, understandably wants to push harder and harder while there is momentum, while they view momentum and while they have these communities that are somewhat in many cases, somewhat insular that agree that we need to push harder on, um, you know, all sorts of, uh, progressive social issues. Um, it's the messaging that that's a real challenge to get middle of the road people on board. I used to be more like harshly critical of the college left, but like now after like, you know, looking back, I think it's like a nice thing you know, to be in college and to like be idealistic, right? To focus strictly on on like what is good and what is meritous and what is to be achieved. Because I think like the beauty of being idealistic is that you can kind of see things kind of where you want to want to be as they are and study them in their purity and discuss them in their purity. Right. Uh, what I don't like is this like echo chamber obsession that everyone has to agree with what I what I think. But what I do like is like this I like that idealism that the theoretical, that like abject rejection of liberalism that you might innately have after reading, you know, Karl Marx and um, and some of the Frankfurt School philosophers, like or like some other like contemporary theorists like Derek Bell. You can you can read that and you can and it, I think that is transformative. That's healthy. That's good. That's like part of kind of cultivating your intellectual identity. But I think at, at some point, like, yeah, you got to I would add Ibram Kendi, Stamped from the Beginning, is one of the most amazing history texts in terms of right. discussing the legacy of racial injustice. 
Right, Ibrahim Kennedy is very, very good. Um, I, I mean, I personally, I'm a, I, I enjoyed Derek Bell a lot. I think the way he framed like and built, uh, developed the concept of critical legal theory hmm. plays a substantial role in the way critical race theory like um, exists in our like power dimension, power dimensions amidst our academics. So then, yeah, being a college leftist and like conservatives are like, oh, it's dangerous. It's part of this postmodern Marxism that is trying to take over our campuses. No, it's just you know, bougie students being idealistic and thoughtful about things, which isn't necessarily bad. And it's funny because it plays on liberal tropes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like being a leftist and a Marxist on campus is the most liberal thing ever because the liberal system is set up for you to be this like Hagi-Feely idealist or this radical that you want to be because you're insulated and you're protected and you don't really have to be affected or affect the real world. So, so as a liberal, I think that's a great thing. <laughs> Go ahead, hate liberalism in college. <laughs> Do it all there. <laughs> but but I, 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 think, I think at some point, like once you are, like you have to realize in order to drive change, you have to work with the institutions at hand. Because in the end, you're just a singular person and you'll have to, again, like there are only so many people out there, right? They will will go in and join hands with you. But, you know, you're not going to change much by throwing a Molotov cocktail unless you throw it smartly, unless you know, like, what effects you'll insinuate by throwing that Molotov cocktail that'll create the changes that you want. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so a lot it, has to happen downstream of the cocktail that <laughs> has to also kind of fall in place in a in a particular way. And other people might demonize the cocktail quite a bit. Um, right. but I just, you know, when I, you I talked about so working with institutions... Uh, I learned that sort of inadvertently, like just through, okay, I was able to get elected in high school and in college to some student government stuff, which put me in a closer, um, working relationship and advocating for what students wanted to administrators than the everyday student typically was. And so I would see like, okay, Dean Livingston at Carleton would get over 200 emails a day. She told me over 200 emails a day. And which ones do you think a person who gets over 200 emails a day are she going to take most seriously? It's not as likely to be uh, Ryan Gorey like writing something that looks that's really angry and uh, posted on Facebook and then people like look at this email that I sent her. Well, how terrible that she didn't respond. <laughs> like it's not as likely to be that. Um, and so I learned that uh, in a way that. I, I think is meaningful because, and I didn't really intend for that. I didn't intend to be like, I'm going to take the institutionalist approach to radical change. Cause like at what point am I just walking a middle path that's weird and curvy and doesn't exist, but these are people, they are people. And, um, the position of power that they are in is can, can meaningfully be changed. Uh, if you engage them, in the right way. But that's such a specific thing too. I'm not, I, I don't even want to apply or extrapolate that logic to all institutions. It's just, um, yeah, that in general, I think people need to be more engaged with, with the people that are representing them at all, at a very local level. A college campus mm-hmm. is kind of hyper local, but like, you know, your city council, your county, com- county board of commissioners, your aldermen, whatever it is, right. and figure out how to, how to, how to interact with them in a way that, that lobbies them successfully. We uh, we have a hard limit of 13 minutes left on this episode, which is sad because I sure. always ask people about music. And then I have a final question I want to ask you about brokenness. Um, but so, go so ahead. Shoot making away. a hard turn, a hard turn into music. 
Yeah. What's on your playlist, man? What have you been listening to? I know that you, we really liked Snarky Puppy um, mm-hmm. in college, and there, and you introduced me to how brilliant they are. But what right. else? What else have you been vibing with, Rohan? Uh it's funny. I've been listening to uh, a lot of this group called. Um, I've been listening to like a lot of, firstly, a lot of acid jazz, like uh, collaborations between Miles Davis and Wayne Shorter. There's mm, like really Wayne fun Shorter. album. Really fun album with a lot of the stars, and it's super experimental called Bitches Brew. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's Miles Davis, Wayne Shorter, John McLaughlin, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock. Like you have all these names, and Joe Zawinul from Weather Report. You have like all these names in this album. And it's just it's just mind blowing. Like it's crazy what these guys are doing with sound, with like the phenomena of sound and the phenomena of musical discourse and interaction. And and I think it's a it's a beautiful thing. And then this goes back to my like original framing of essence versus existence. I mean, music I think is one of the one of the greatest ways you can like deconstruct and rebuild your whole reality, right? Like mm-hmm. kind of tear it apart and like uh, reframe it again. And it, I think it's a great example of like how how things are in this continuity that we see it to be. It's it's really it's really quite quite a spont- spontaneous yet ordered chaos. <laughs> That makes me want to say so many things. First of all, I met Chick Korea when I was working at a nice hotel. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, this relates to the individuality of uh, people's experiences. Because, like, okay, here's me. I sit in a place where I make music. And you can see this Rocket 6 KRK studio monitor speaker. I have another one to my right. These are designed to produce... Um, a very flat and I guess sort of objective sound when you're mixing, but you have to be sitting in an equilateral triangle in a particular spot where they're both hitting you in the right way. And it's so mm-hmm. true that somebody could be sitting right next to me and be hearing different music than me. Mm-hmm. That I think is amazing that you go to a concert and if you want to get really close to the performer, you're not going to hear the high end um signals as much because they're coming off of the mains of the tweeters that are far to your left and far to your right um so there's a really good parallel between um is existence real which was your initial point (laughs) are we shared in this existence that we understand together or is it highly individualized even when we're in the same room listening to what we think is the same music well yeah it's it's like it's like the analogy of of the blind the, the blind man and the elephant right like the closer you are to the elephant, the less you can see it, right? So what you rely on is that uh, people are touching the different sides of the elephant to then tell the whole story, to like piece this elephant puzzle together. So that's kind of it. And like, like uh, one like person touches people, the tail, another per- person and thinks the, it's uh, trunk. They touch yeah. the trunk and they think it's a snake. It's snake-like, you know. I don't know yeah. the rest. <laughs> right. Wow, that's really cool. Bitches brew. I haven't checked out in quite a while because I'm very basic. When it comes to jazz, because I listen to just so many more other things, um, I love it. Um, but man, kind of blue is so good. It's it's so good that it just deserves the acclaim that I think it has by for a lot of people as the mm. greatest jazz album. Um, but I'm also a big fan of Take Five. You know, um, mm. Dave Brubeck, Time Out. That album is also pretty yeah. fucking epic. Anything else, anything outside of jazz that's spoken to you l- lately? 
I don't know. I listen to mostly old. And then there's also uh, John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra. It's also Mahavishnu really Orchestra. Birds yeah. of Fire is an amazing Birds album. Great album. And then he also has another group called Shakti, which isn't, isn't as popular, but he started it with this classical violinist from South India. He started with Zakir Hussain, who's probably the greatest tabla player of all time. Mm. And, um, and he has a few other percussionists and sitarists who've done the group on and off. And it's, it's just amazing. I mean, you have to listen to their stuff. Put it on your podcast later. Um, uh, Face to Face is my favorite song by them. They just have this, this like this flow that comes with just that pure prodigy and talent. Beautiful. Well, probably the last question I will get to ask you in this great conversation, hopefully the first of multiple uh, conversations we have in this manner is where do you observe brokenness in the way that we learn from and interact with one another and how can we repair it? Right. So the, the the way the way I sort of observe or and, and, and see and see brokenness, at least like as we as we uh, understand it is um, is really in like all factors of our life. I mean I don't know. I mean to, to say that something is broken, you have to say that it was complete to begin with, right? It's like what point does something become broken? Because oftentimes it's seen like this critique that oh, the system isn't broken, it was just built this way, right? Mm. But then can something be built to be broken? Or if something that is built, is it built in a way that it just doesn't work? And if something is built in a way that just doesn't work, is it built broken or is it built malfunctioning? Like, is it just malfunctioning? Where do you draw the line between or identify that which is malfunctioning and that which is broken? And... um, Good point, yeah. but then the how can we improve the the uh, malfunctioning or non-working elements of how we learn from and interact with one another? That's all I'm well, trying to do in life. I know it's kind of so lofty, but that's what I'm trying to figure out. So it's funny because when you have a when you have a malfunctioning machine, it can it can break things, right? Like um, like, and I think like the great the great example, like uh, someone who influenced a lot of my thoughts, and this is Yuval Levin kind of a, a theorist and philosopher in his own right, um, he, he kind of, um, he takes something that is, is quote-unquote, like, malfunctioning, like our current democratic systems, and he says, well, look at what it's actively causing, right? Like our democratic institutions of media and the uh, Senate divide and national politics is, in a sense, fracturing and creating a crevasse between the different groups in people's country. And this goes all the way back to like people have been making this argument since the 60s and then the 80s, like Alan Bloom, like closing up the American mind, people living in greater proximity to those who think like them, right? Mm-hmm. Like blues moving into blue areas, people are reds moving into red areas, right? This segregation on the basis of ideology, politics, and identity. And, and I think there is a breaking out there. There's sort of a, a breaking up the red, white, and blue American heart, you know, the, the, the separation of the stripes kind of happening in our own geographic map. Because people, as they kind of descend into their own sort of chamber of, of media and proximity-constructed reality, break away and separate and fracture from the rest of the group, hence creating this bifurcated and innately separated democracy in it. And I think that's a very, very toxic and unhealthy phenomenon in so many ways. 
So, hmm. well, one of the places where I it sounds so high school. Um, I actually had a student body president who succeeded me, named Seiji, at North Eugene High School, and we had three small schools at our school. Uh, one that was arts focused, one that was international learning focused, and one that was a little more tech, technology and pre kind of engineering kind of things. And they weren't all that different from one another, but those delineations became quite rigid in social spaces because, like, all of the international people would have the same classes together and you'd only cross pollinate with like electives and stuff. And Seiji, who was the student body president for everybody, like I had been the year before, he said, we need to unite at the sports games because when you're all together at the sports games, it's like you're all one high school and you don't care about which, high, which small school that you're in. Um, and I think I've, I, I grew up really loving sports. Then I saw a lot of limitations with the, the social element of it and got into more into music and art. And now more recently I've become more interested in sports again. Um, and I think like, uh, you know, sports though are possibly becoming less, uh, successful financially. Um, the NFL certainly, um, maybe the NBA as well. And certainly, uh, MLB and, um, maybe, you know, it, it does seem that like, Still on some level, but certainly like 5, 10, 15 years ago, people who might have voted for uh, a Bush voter and a Kerry voter or a Al Gore voter and a Bush voter like could still rah-rah be at a football game uh, and like not see those divisions as much. So what do you think about that? In, well, in no, two now that the political <laughs> divisions is funny because I actually have a boss who complains about this. So literally doesn't watch national football or national soccer, national basketball, and just mm -hmm. watches college sports. He's like, he's like, I can't stand the politics of sports anymore. Like, mm -hmm. I can't stand this whole kneeling for the national anthem. Like, I can't stand the whole Black Lives Matter on the NBA shirts, the whole Black Lives Matter and the football helmets, right? And it's like you see these like political divides of kind of slipped into like because in the end like everything is influenced by like the political nature of the institutions right the power paradigm and it kind of slips into and seeps into sports to the point that yeah you can have people from all sides of the political aisle supporting the same team but they would absolutely tear each other apart for the way they saw the influence of politics and sports as they are today so i think right. like a sports uh for for better or worse is like representing these divisions and Whereas, like, I am sympathetic to some of the political ideas that they're perpetuating, particularly basketball. And I also really don't like the way uh, football, the football NFL really treated Colin Kaepernick. I think that was absolutely ridiculous, the fact that right. they continue to accept people who commit domestic violence and domestic abuse, but completely reject someone who just kneel during the national anthem. It shows a com complete destruction in the hierarchy of values that should exist in the, within any institution completely deconstructs my respect for the entire institution. I have no respect for the NFL as, I mean, I like the, I like the games, but uh, the way the <laughs> league is a lot more respect. But also basketball, the same thing is like, these guys are, you realize they're all about the money. They realize that their audience cares less about things like sexual assault and violence and more about things like political opinions. And I think that's funny because that's reflecting the broken nature of our country. We don't care about real things that actually happen we just care about the abstract opinions of people and that's what offends us oh like back to like you know wearing the so dangerous to wear what you believe as you as your identity as your skin because that literally it's not 
just you know then just like what you look like you are what you believe and that is so right. dangerous because then you can't change then you can't agree then you can't come to terms with someone else you're just the amalgamation of your various subjective opinions and and you're so you're so entrenched in creating essence creating creating existence out of essence where you really can't and and i think i wish we had more time to discuss this because we are like uh, against a hard limit here and you brought up these amazingly pertinent topics that i am now going to have to just immediately move away from and end isn't that a tragedy of the brokenness of like classrooms like classrooms do that shit all the time yeah, i love you rohan time. time is broken my best time to your mom and my uh, mom was just here she was being my production assistant trying to turn nice. on my lights and you know all right. clean up my little <laughs> good to see it. you yeah man well thank you and we'll do this again sometime take care all right awesome thanks you too man. love you love you too peace gun sex drugs well dressed yes yes flex packs my breast sag wet bags let's get tex max rolling out on cupcake day national pro-life cupcake day yeah we on that cupcake day national pro-life cupcake day hate it if you want but it's cupcake day everyone should get a fucking cupcake day you can stay mad at the pro-lifers i don't see you with the cupcake day trade my whole life just to bust the last rapper that i trusted was me more japanese than your fellow lad my peanuts in a yellow bag cause i am an m See.